This is a podcast from the Scottish Magazines Network, a research project about Scotland's independent magazine culture from the 1960s to the 1990s. To find out more, just search Scottish Magazines Network. The project is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Hello, I'm Dr. Scott Hames. I'm looking at the cover of the first issue of Scottish International, published in January 1968. The title and the main image are in a very striking magenta color. The design has a sort of pop art feel. It recalls some of the Andy Warhol screen prints of that era. But the main cover image is a more local pun reacting to the title. So the idea of a Scottish international football match. The image on the cover is of a football goalie diving to save a shot in front of a huge crowd. The cover advertises a quarterly review on the themes of arts, media, environment, costing four shillings, or £3.70 in today's money, though it was discounted for students to two and six, or about £2.30 today. There are a number of interesting names on the cover, uh, ranging from Norman McCaig, Robert Garriach, Diem Black, Edwin Morgan, Bob Tate, Alexander Scott, Ian Hamilton Finlay, many of the key uh, literary and poetic figures in Scottish writing at the time. But it's the international dimension of the magazine and its identity that caused such a stir when it first appeared. The editorial begins on the cover, and it sets the scene in the following way. Scotland, 1968, mainly urban population, sharing with the rest of Britain a government, mass media, and much of the available press and publishing among many other things. There is discontent with the consequences of this situation for Scotland, as witness Hamilton and other SNP successes. So it's gesturing back to the Hamilton by-election of November 1967, just a few weeks before this would have gone to press. One must neither underrate nor exaggerate what this unease means, it continues. The shared interests and culture form part of the terms within which people are now living in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Dundee, and other places. It is with these people defined in these terms that our story begins. And then, in boldface, but independence from a large center of power and influence is necessary for any people who have their own ways and want to communicate among themselves and to the outside world their particular image and likeness. This can be a problem for those north of Hampstead as for the people north of the Tweed. So we're not just concerned with Scottish problems here. We believe that people need their own publications through which they can create a presence for themselves and perhaps some influence too. Though it undoubtedly marked a new beginning, Scottish International is not the first magazine of interest to this network. It followed in the footsteps of literary magazines such as Jabberwock, Sidewalk, and Gambit, all produced by students at the University of Edinburgh, and Scottish poetry magazines like Lions Review and New Saltire, which were established fixtures by 1968. But Scottish International did mark some kind of watershed, linking the question of Scottish cultural change to the energies of 60s counterculture and charting a new, often critical course between the poles of nationalism and internationalism during its run between January 1968 and March 1974. The first editorial makes a special point of acknowledging its elder siblings, noting the precarious conditions in which earlier Scottish magazines have been sustained. It says that Scottish International joins others which have had to exist on practically nothing for years. Its editors want to draw your attention to them right away, particularly Across, 
Germ, Gallic Magazine, Lines Review, and Poor Old Tired Horse, Ian Hamilton Finley's Journal of Concrete Poetry. This was more than gracious acknowledgement of its predecessors. It was also an olive branch to a Scottish literary community, both surprised and irritated at the generous support extended to this upstart magazine by the Scottish Arts Council, which had effectively created Scottish International from nothing. Its managing editor, Bob Tate, was a 24-year-old writer and postgraduate student in philosophy, highly interested in the new media theories of Marshall McLuhan, and appointed partly on the strength of his work on the student paper Feedback, which Scottish International technically incorporated into itself from this first issue. Tate was now managing the most lavishly supported magazine in the country. The researcher Rory Scothorn, who we'll be hearing more from in a moment, reports that the Scottish Arts Council agreed in July 1967 to give the magazine considerable support, guaranteeing it against loss of up to £2,500, including a £1,000 salary for Tate as editor and £200 for the two editorial consultants, the poets Edward Morgan and Robert Garrick. This was a far larger sum than that granted to other literary publications. The Gallic language Germ received £250, and Akros received 300 Just how much money was this? According to the Bank of England inflation calculator, £1,000 then was £18,500 now. That was the salary of Bob Tate. And £250, the budget for Germ, was only 4600 of our pounds today. So existing on practically nothing was no exaggeration, and many editors of literary magazines today would confirm that not much has changed. But the hostility the project met with also had a political dimension. The nationalist poetry scene, who were the mainstays of magazines such as Across, the early Lines Review, and the later Scotia and Scotia Review, were quick to suspect an establishment stitch-up an effort to divert energy and resources from truly national cultural revival of the kind sparked by Hugh McDermott in the 1920s and 30s. Anticipating trouble from these quarters, Bob Tate had written to various established figures in Scottish writing, seeking support and inviting submissions for the magazine before it published its first issue. The replies are bracing. Hugh McDermott wrote a cordial letter to Tate, refusing to endorse the magazine, which he denounced a few months later in Catalyst, the journal of the 1320 Club of Militant Nationalists. One of McDermott's leading protégés, Tom Scott, issued a furious rebuff, complaining to Tate that, quote, even the title of the magazine is ludicrous, Scottish International. What is it, a football match? The word international in a Scottish context usually is a euphemism for English, or Anglo-Yank, now that the U.S. increasingly dominate English policy. In any case, it is most likely to mean in practice anti-Scottish in the case of this magazine, merely another manifestation of the Scottish national death wish to immolate the nation on an English altar labeled international. This fault line between national and international and, indeed, competing claims by younger cosmopolitans and older patriots to the mantle of being truly international, would be a running theme in the debates of the 1960s and 70s, and it can be found right throughout these Scottish magazines. For an excellent overview, see Eleanor Bell's article Rejecting the Knitted Claymore, which you can access via the network's informal bibliography on the SMN blog. With the appearance of Scottish International, Bell argues, Scottish magazine culture became more noticeably polemical, politically and culturally engaged. 
The editorial to issue two, she observes, begins with an especially unusual call to arms for a literary magazine. Quote, there are going to be changes in this country. Writers and artists had better start asking what kind of place people will have to live in. We are deeply concerned about the present nationalist controversy and welcome discussion from every political angle. Here, Bell argues, quote, there is both an inherent critique of the potential pitfalls of nationalism, and yet also a growing awareness of the distinctiveness of Scotland from the rest of the UK. In this sense, the magazine trod a delicate balancing act between interrogating aspects of cultural nationalist complacency and acknowledging a deep need for cultural and political change in Scotland. But how precisely were cultural and political change connected? And how might we trace their connectedness through the key Scottish magazines of the period? Our guest today is ideally placed to guide us through this terrain. John Herdman is a novelist, a short story writer and a literary critic, and the author of Another Country, an essential memoir of literary political life in Scotland in the 1960s and 70s. He was personally connected to many of the figures, debates, and titles we've mentioned thus far, and our conversation ranged widely across the world of the magazines, from Across to Chapman, and of course, Scottish International, which was the fulcrum of the What Kind of Scotland conference held in 1973, which John helped to organize alongside Bob Tate, the SNP intellectual Stephen Maxwell, and many others. He joined us from his home in his native Edinburgh. John, welcome. Thank you very much. The other voice you'll hear is Rory Scothorn, who is completing his PhD on Scottish radicalism of the 1960s to the 1980s, with a particular focus on these small magazines. Rory, welcome. Uh, it's great to be on. You'll also be hearing my voice, although at an earlier stage of this rather heavy cold. So a number of modern Scottish writers kind of became nationalists or became truly aware of the politics of their nationality while in England at places like Eton or Oxbridge. Now, you were at Cambridge in the early 1960s. Was this your experience there? Uh, yes, it was really. I think there were three particular influences. First was simply the experience of being in a different culture and uh, realizing that I was a, a different creature from the friends and acquaintances that I was moving among. Uh, not that I didn't enjoy the experience, I did, but I did realize that I was, you know, something different. The second influence, I think, was my enthusiasm for Irish literature, Yeats, Joyce, Beckett, and so forth, and realizing that uh, I had more of an, an affinity with that than I had with uh, English literature. And the third thing was that when I'd been at Cambridge about a year, I discovered McDermott's thought and poetry uh, originally in a volume called Wisdom of the Scots, edited by Murray McLaren. And, um, you know, I, I quickly became very interested in McDermott and his views. And McDermott was obviously, uh, around the start of the 60s, also involved in an increasingly fiery controversy in Edinburgh, where, where the International Writers' Conference in 1962 sees this great clash between uh, McDermott and Trockey and, and a kind of conflict between a cosmopolitan vision of Scottish culture and one that you might see as more nationalist. Were you keeping abreast of those kinds of developments back in Edinburgh at the time. Uh, there, there were other things going on too. There was the emergence of Jim Haynes's paperback bookshop, uh, the launch of the Traverse Theatre. Now, I know you were going back and forth between Edinburgh and elsewhere during the mid-60s. 
were you staying plugged into those developments in Edinburgh at the time? Yes, I was very much so. Uh, in fact, I, I joined the Traverse Theatre Club, I think, almost within the first month or two of its of its foundation. And uh, the Writers' Conference is certainly the first one I wasn't at. I was away somewhere else. But the Drama Conference the following year I definitely was at. And uh, that was, I think, the one in which the nude was uh, wheeled across the stage. Also, I was uh, definitely a habitué at Jim Haynes's paperback bookshop and going to a lot of, of theatre in Edinburgh at the time. And did you have a sense of your own position within the kind of cultural politics there? Was there a pressure to take sides within those tensions? Were those, were those tensions obvious? I wasn't aware of that until perhaps a little bit later, to about the end of the 60s. Uh, it seemed to me that, you know, Hugh McDermott was a nationalist and he was uh, also a socialist and that that was all right. I, I hadn't quite clicked so much onto the antipathy between uh, the cosmopolitans and the uh, internationalists, let's say, because McDermott, of course, would have regarded himself as a, an internationalist, but not as a cosmopolitan. I think there was quite a subtle difference there, but an important one. Absolutely. And, and, and I think you see um, in some of the commentary at the time uh, a particular resistance to the so-called internationalism of the Edinburgh International Festival. You say you returned to Edinburgh in 1967. Yes. Did it feel like things had uh, changed? Did the city feel like some element of that uh, international cultural world uh, of the festival had embedded itself in the city? I think it definitely had, yes. Uh, I mean, it may have been partly that I was becoming more aware of, of the cultural world myself than I had been, you know, at the time I left school. But yes, I was aware that there was a more cosmopolitan atmosphere in the city and that uh, people like Councillor Kidd, the, the arch uh, representative of backward values, uh, were, were more on the back foot and having to defend themselves. And where did uh, Scottish identity fit into that? Did it, did it feel like the Scottish national culture had been uh, sidelined by that or was it being changed uh, and, and developing in tandem with that? I think the two things were happening uh, in tandem to some extent. I wouldn't say that the Traverse Theatre was particularly oriented towards Scottish work, for instance. I think the, the national consciousness that was beginning to develop brought some of the, the second wave poets of the Scottish Renaissance sort of back into the picture, as it were. They, they, people became more aware of them. And uh, so the, the, the scene was set really for a bit of a confrontation uh, between the cosmopolitans um, and the, the old guard Scottish Renaissance people, who were all socialists themselves, but of a very different stamp from the, uh, the, the newer generation, I think. Could you expand a bit on that difference within socialism and, and, and nationalism between those two? generation. Yes. Uh, well, if you take Bob Tate as an example, the editor of, of Scottish International or the managing editor of Scottish International, I mean, I think he would have regarded himself, well, definitely a socialist, but he would have regarded himself as anti-centralist um, and possibly devolutionist at that stage from very much a socialist perspective, whereas uh, the old guard, people like Tom Scott and the more militant of McDermott's um, followers would have put you know, cultural developments, uh, you know, Scottish culture, much above all that, and indeed tended to despise uh, any enthusiasm for beat poets, you know, Burroughs, Trockey, uh, concrete poetry, all that kind of area. 
obviously by the end of the 60s, you begin to see uh, an upswelling of political nationalism. Yes. Um, and, and at the very end of the decade, you contribute to Duncan Glenn's collection, uh, Wither Scotland. In that, you describe uh, what you call a post-Hamilton euphoria yes. um, after the SNP's victory in the Hamilton by-election in 1967. What did Ewing's victory there mean for you at the time? And, and what kind of things did you think might come after it? Well, it meant for me the extraordinary possibility that Scottish independence might actually happen. Uh, you know, I knew that it was a long way off, but it became uh, a realistic political possibility for the future, whereas before it had just seemed like a pipe dream, really. Uh, but I think that when I looked more closely at SNP policy, I, I became very disappointed by well, the tokenism and philistinism of its cultural policies, its excessive preoccupation with economics. So I'd been expecting, I think, a more militant follow-up, really, uh, from the victory, but that was probably naive. Would that militant follow-up have been in terms of demanding independence, or when you talk about cultural policies, what kind of things would you have been expecting from the SNP? Uh, well, a, a strong emphasis on um, language, I think, supporting Scotland's minority languages, both Scots and Gaelic. And uh, I would have expected a more militant approach to politics as well. Well, just to give an example, although that was slightly in the future, members of the SNP were told in the 60s and 70s that a majority for Scottish independence in the only parliament that there was then, which was the Westminster Parliament, would be a mandate for independence. And that was gradually dropped over the years. And it was felt that a referendum would be necessary. And obviously we see some of the consequences of that shift today. Indeed. I'm moving toward the, the terrain of the magazines themselves. And one reason you're such an excellent person to interview on this subject is that your own writing career and your own political thinking seems very closely linked to the world of the magazines. The flyleaf to your first novel, A Truth Lover, published in 1973, introduces you as a young writer with, quote, a considerable amount of criticism printed in Scottish literary periodicals. Uh, by this time, you'd already been editor of Catalyst and become involved with the Scottish International Circle. And of course, the novel itself was published under the imprint of Across, Duncan Glenn's Poetry Review. Thinking back, John, what role would you say these magazines played in your own education and development as a writer? Well, it was a very important one because uh, it provided a background of, of uh, cultural activity which, in which creative work was received. Uh, it's very difficult to produce creative work unless there's someone to, to receive it, to review it, to talk about it. And uh, the magazines in those days definitely did that. They, they did provide such an arena. And uh, I was very lucky. Uh, my first novel was turned down, I think, about 15 times by Metropolitan uh, Publishers. And eventually I was writing quite a lot for Atcross and Duncan Glenn very kindly agreed to take it on. It was the only novel, actually, that he ever published because he was primarily concerned with poetry. And he published my second novel, my second published novel, Pagan's Pilgrimage, as well, and it received no fewer than nine reviews, all, I think, in Scotland. And that was very much down to um, the strength of the, of the magazine culture there. It also, of course, provided work and activity for young writers such as myself, 
Um, the pay wasn't great, but at least you were taking part in a in a cultural arena, and so you know that 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 also was quite affirming. That's really interesting to think of it as providing a space in which to uh, reach a public and also sort of develop a Scottish cultural public yes. who were engaging with the, the same issues and following a, a distinct line of development uh, in Scottish art. Were you conscious of that at the time or is that clearer in retrospect? I think I was conscious of it because, as, as I say, I, I'd notably failed to, to get anywhere in, by sending to conventional London publishers. So, yes, I did realise that there was a, a critical tradition connected with Scottish magazines because, of course, some of them were quite um, already quite long-lived. I mean, Lines Review had been going on since the 50s, I think. Before the explosion of the 19, late 1960s, uh, there had already been some degree of, of that sort of activity going on. And it's clear that some of those magazines from the late 60s are trying to build upon what came before. When you think of that period in the 60s, in what ways did those magazines seem to make connections, connections among people, among ideas, among movements, in ways that seem significant to you now? Well, um, speaking at a personal level, I made many friends through them. When I was editor of Catalyst, for instance, I was sent work by, by poets, and uh, some of them, like Donald Campbell, I became very friendly with. I became friendly with Duncan Glenn himself. So the, at, a, at a purely personal level, there was a lot of friendship going on. Some of the connections were confrontational. Some of them began as being confrontational and then changed. There were scenes of debate. You, you got to learn who stood for what, for what attitudes, what ideas different people stood for. Uh, and yet there was a sense of cohesiveness over the literary scene as a whole in spite of the different attitudes of, of different individuals and groups. That's a really interesting thing to look back on, because as you go through the archive, you notice the same names again and again. And it's clear that these people know each other personally and not just yes. in print. And I wonder how much of a factor that was in the sort of literary and critical culture of the magazines. The idea that it was very likely you'd bump into this person in the pub or on the train within the next six months. Was it a sense of a, of a small world, a claustrophobic world at, at times? Uh, it was certainly a sense of a small world. I don't know that it was that claustrophobic. Uh, maybe the the old style, uh, you know, the second wave generation poets who all met in the Rose Street pubs, that may have uh, seemed a bit almost old-fashioned at the time. Pubs like Sandy Bell's, where there was a mixing with not only literary figures, but also with students. Uh, uh, there was a lot of interaction with people in the folk scene, so that broadened it again. And also artists, people like um, Sandy Moffat, uh, you would meet them in Sandy Bell's. So it was wider than one might think. And quite a good deal of, of interchange between the literary world and the political world in these circles as well, it seems. Yes, that's right. Uh, there were many extreme dislikes going on. People like Tom Scott, who was probably the most militant of, of the McDermidites, um, really hated people like Bob Tate and Robin Fulton, and he regarded them as being concerned with nothing but fashion, money, and so forth. I mean, he even said that to me once, you know, these people are not concerned with anything but power and money and fashion. And um, <laughs> um, not all the old camp were like that, of course, not at all. And uh, Duncan Glenn was um, a younger generation, but 
generation, you know, 10 years older than me, perhaps eight, eight years older than me. And he was much more tolerant and broad-minded. Uh, he didn't tend to make political statements, uh, but he was militant culturally. Uh, but when I tried to build a few bridges with Bob Tate, Tom Scott you know, publicly described me as a traitor at one point. Uh, so that was the sort of thing that went on. Gosh, that's an interesting distinction between politically and culturally militant. Yes. Um, and I think it actually clarifies to me slightly the sense that in that late 60s period, you have a consolidation of political nationalism around the rising success of the SNP, but very visible fault lines, perhaps expanding cracks between different cultural orientations to nationalism. That's right. And there were, all, there were almost as many camps as there, were, as there were individuals in a way, because a lot of the poets actually didn't uh, put their political cards very much on the table. People like Norman McCaig, for instance, and also Eddie Morgan, who McDermott regarded as, as part of the sort of Scottish international, you know, arty-farty, soft side, um, ended up by leaving almost all his money to the SNP. Uh, Robert Garriach um, never made political statements. Um, so you, you, you didn't necessarily know because someone espoused a cultural position that they ne necessarily um, took a, a nationalist position in politics, though many of them probably did, but preferred to keep it quiet. Your memoir, Another Country, paints a vivid picture of the Edinburgh cultural scene across the 1960s and 70s. In that book, you describe, quote, a golden age of small magazine publication in Scotland in this period in which the ideological wars of that era were fought out. I wonder if you could say a little bit about these ideological wars and the leading camps and personalities. Well, I suppose as far as poetry was concerned, the leading camp, the, the only one that was really coherent was the Lalland Scots camp uh, because they had a very definite position and they they labored always to persuade young poets to try and write in Scots. That was a, a very strong thing. And um, there were particular magazines that uh, favored the Lalland's poets and others that didn't favor them. For instance, um, Acros tended to support Lalland's, uh, well, Scots. I would prefer the word Scots, um, Scots poets, uh, whereas Robin Fulton, editor of Lines for a lot of this period, was very hostile to nationalism, not only political, but also cultural nationalism. And um, although the owner of Lines Review, Callum MacDonald, was, was very favorable to Scottish culture, Robin Fulton wasn't. And um, so that was a, you know, a, a definite two camps there. But you couldn't ever say that the English poetry writers as a whole uh, belong to any particular coherent camp. Most of them were individuals doing their own thing. Right. Although they, I think they became identified with Scottish International almost purely as the foil to that earlier uh, McDermott-influenced Renaissance camp, would you say? Could you say a bit about the conflict yes. that emerged around the formation of that magazine? Well, uh, very quickly, uh, Hugh McDermott came out against it. And uh, the reason he gave was that uh, it was supported by the Scottish Arts Council. And it's very understandable, this, because a lot of these magazines have been struggling on very small grants for a long time. Then suddenly, Scottish International was um, given a very large grant, I think 5,000 a year, which was very large in those days. 
uh, a magazine which came from nowhere. And McDermott particularly was very suspicious of it. And he wrote a vitriolic article in Catalyst. And he regarded everyone concerned with Scottish International as, as really toadies of the establishment, I think. And, uh, of course, Bob Tate and, and uh, his followers reacted very strongly against that too. And it was perceived as being uh, a battle between nationalists and anti-nationalists, which was to simplify the actual position greatly, I think. Yes, I think so. And we'll, we'll come on to uh, the role of Scottish International in sort of refining and developing nationalist thought um, uh, in just a moment. Yes. There's so much activity in this period. Can you think of a, of a reason or a trigger for it? What was the main impetus for this explosion of magazine writing and production in Scotland, in your view? Well, I suppose it was the slow development of national consciousness, which was culturally initiated by McDermott. But of course, there were many other social and political factors that, that were going on all the time quietly. And um, it's hard to put a, a finger on, on it. But I, 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 for instance, wasn't aware until Hamilton that there'd been that the SNP had been growing politically uh, over several years, you know, throughout the throughout the 60s, really. And um, as I say, some of these magazines had been in place for a number of years. And although Lines Review, for instance, was taken over by Robin Fulton um, and turned rather into something that it hadn't been before, um, several of the, of the old war horses of the second wave of the Scottish Renaissance uh, were editors of it at, at various points. Uh, but I think it, it's difficult to, to pin down just why that was happening more than that. But of course, one led to another. The more magazines appeared, the more people thought of starting new magazines uh, representing their own particular viewpoints. I mean, Chapman would be an example of that. But we have the impression of these magazines <clears throat> emerging and sort of defining themselves somewhat against each other or as, or as alternatives or complements to one another? I think most of them saw themselves as complements to one another. Um, I think Scottish International was, was trying to do something quite different. It was um, increasingly became something more like the New Statesman. You know. But I think most of them um, were trying to give expression perhaps to their own editors' viewpoints. Uh, but also they had a commitment in common to, to Scottish culture, I would say, and, and everybody was aware of that. Mm -hmm. Setting aside the quarrels between literary nationalists, um, what role would you say these magazines played in bringing together nationalists and socialists? Uh, well, I think it was slow. I think this division between the, let's say, the, the cosmopolitans and the old-style nationalists, uh, to begin with, seemed to, to make the gap wider. But I think in the long term that that wasn't so. Uh, I think, and as the political scene changed, the SNP continued to grow slowly in strength. Uh, I think uh, various people who had been a, a primarily anti-centralist and possibly devolutionist before began to move further towards a recognition of the national viewpoint, um, the national dimension, let's say. Uh, among, among those people was Bob Tate, I think, uh, who re realized the way things were going. And I think also what he did with Scottish International started a tradition of incisive political comment 
uh, in the pages of Scottish journals, which hadn't been there before. I mean, people like Tom Nairn and Neil Asherson, uh, I think, uh, emerged from that. So you, you talked there, John, about um, Scottish internationals' uh, increasingly political character during the uh, early 1970s. And that uh, seems to have sort of concentrated itself into this event in uh, April 1973 uh, called What Kind of Scotland that was held, I think, at Edinburgh University and uh, drew together a, a fairly broad range of Scottish writers and uh, academics and so on to uh, ask the question, what kind of Scotland are we looking for? What were the kind of expectations uh, behind this conference? Um, I think you were on the organising committee, is that right? That's right, I was, yes. Uh, well, Bob Tate uh, asked myself and uh, Stephen Maxwell, who was sometimes described as the SNP's only intellectual, uh, he asked us to, to, to join the committee to balance um, himself and, and one or two people in, in his own uh, circle. And um, I think he wanted to say that it's not enough just to stand for an independent Scotland. You've got to know what sort of Scotland you want. So his idea was to uh, bring in people from all kinds of, of different areas of cultural and political and social life and uh, bring them all together and see what happened. I think that worked to, to a certain extent, and it certainly, I think, encouraged this uh, tradition of authoritative commentary on national questions. That was reinforced and strengthened uh, by, uh, both by Scottish national, International's activity and by the conference. Because, of course, a lot of people had previously seen Scottish International as a, a kind of Trojan horse and felt also that it oughtn't have been to have been receiving uh, so much Arts Council money uh, when it was becoming more and more a political journal uh, because uh, the Arts Council was not supposed to fund political activity. But um, the most important aspect of what kind of Scotland uh, was the first rehearsed reading of the Chevy at the Stag and the Black Black Isle by John McGrath, which was quite unplanned. It only happened, I think, about a week or two before the conference. But it turned out to be the most significant event, I think, of the what kind of Scotland conference. John, could you say a bit about, about how the play was received by that audience? Uh, it was received very enthusiastically, yes. Um, I think they were bowled over, as, as audiences all over Scotland were. I mean, th this, was, this was only a rehearsed reading, and uh, I think the, the company were themselves quite nervous about it, uh, but it was very successful. It's hard to say, of course, quite what, what the people were uh, who made up the audience. I think they were from probably most of the, of the, of the camps, uh, that we've been talking about, though it was probably boycotted by people like Tom Scott. But and There were um, particular talks on economics, on, I think, uh, psychology. Yes. Um, were there kind of fierce debates in these particular sessions? Um, was there a sense of battle lines being drawn, or, or were people starting to come together in these sessions? Yeah, no, I, I don't think there were any big confrontations at, at the... Uh conference at all. I think they were all, uh, all the papers were received pretty soberly and uh, there was nothing, you know, comparable to the International Writers Festival and the International Drama Festival. There was nothing comparable to that. Most, most of the excitement uh, ended up by being around the Chibi at the Stag and the Black Black Oil. 
you know, once the, the conference concluded, there was obviously a lot of coverage of it in the pages of Scots International afterwards. Did that experience change your sense of what might be possible in the in that space between politics and culture in Scotland that, that you saw the SNP kind of failing to fill? Uh, yes, I think it did. I think it did. And uh, I think for the future that the most important thing was this gradual emergence of the uh, tradition of authoritative commentary on national questions. We, we talked already about um, potentially quite a small world centered very much in Edinburgh. Can you give us a sense of the, the atmosphere or the environment in which these magazines were being read and being written um, in terms of the, the social ambiance and the, the personal connections within that? Well, I think you'd probably have to distinguish between the pubs, the Rose Street pubs, where the, the older poets gathered, where there was... Uh, an atmosphere that could be, you know, they, they gathered to, to talk, to argue. Uh, sometimes there could be quite a lot of very spirited argument. Uh, it could be raucous. It could even be violent on occasions because there were also personal dislikes and jealousies that came into it as well. Uh, but that was just against the backdrop of uh, an ordinary, you know, Edinburgh pub mixed clientele. And um, probably a lot of the people wouldn't have been aware of these poets, uh, <laughs> a lot of the pub clientele. The second obvious place would be Sandy Bell's Bar, which was a bit different, primarily a folk pub, but also very much patronised by students, medical students, intellectuals of all kinds, poets, artists, people like Hamish Henderson were fixtures there. Well, there's a story which I might tell you, which perhaps <laughs> says something. Uh, I have a friend who goes frequently to Turkey, goes every year to Turkey. And um, in Istanbul, on one occasion, he met a young Turk who was showing around his photographs of uh, his visit to Edinburgh. And uh, so he came up with this photograph and he said, um, and uh, this is the School of Scottish Studies. And... Um, Chris said, no, that's Sandy Bell's bar. <laughs> and the, the Turk replied, no, 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 School of Scottish Studies. <laughs> and you could just imagine how this confusion might have taken place. Probably he was meeting somebody like Hamish Henderson uh, on the way to the School of Scottish Studies. They called in at Sandy Bell's bar and remained there, and that's where he thought he was, the School of Scottish Studies. And there could have been many reasons why he would have, might almost have been right. So there's that sense of it being quite an informal social world that's not really institutionalised. Of course, there was and is uh, a School of Scottish Studies at the university. Yes. And this was happening kind of at the fringe of university intellectual and political activity. Was there a sense that this world was seeking its own anchorage, its own concrete form uh, in an institution. And I wonder if that was part of the publishing scene in the magazines. I think it probably was. It was uh, because the, there were so many points of view and they all needed a focus and everybody's uh, point of view was slightly different and there wasn't a, a centralized... Uh, of course, many of the people were involved in universities, many of them were university lecturers, for instance, like Alexander Scott, like Hamish Henderson, like John McInnes, and people like that. Uh, but um, 
the scene itself was a bit a bit removed from the universities, perhaps. It's also a time that I remember that there being just a proliferation of events uh, of all kinds, cultural events of all kinds, you know, readings. Uh, poetry readings were very popular. There were two big festivals, Poetry 71 and 72, which were held under the auspices of the university. Um, there were just all kinds of things going on, events at the Traverse, that sort of thing. And it seems that those festivals were a really important place for both generating and kind of consolidating some of these movements. Yes. And it's such a, a fascinating mixture of things because, as you've said, you have elements of, of 1960s counterculture bumping into the kind of self-conscious extremity of the, the nationalist poets uh, indebted to McDermott. Plus you have um, the formal academic world, which is, is joining in with these, and the wider political scene. There was uh, a great number of trade unionists involved in the What Kind of Scotland? That's event. right. So there's a sense that you, it's hard to imagine uh, a crucible bringing together these quite different and quite energized political tribes and tendencies in, in quite the same way. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was difficult to to bring people together in that sort of way. I think that's probably why Bob Tate started the conference, for instance. Often there were people, you mentioned trade unions, there were people around the Jane, John McLean Society, for instance, and people like the, the John McLean Society would... Um, Send people to the SNP conference. Uh, around the the fringes of that were very interesting as well because there were lots of people uh, who used to go and just hang around the fringes, uh, who who weren't uh, essentially party people. Uh, they were they often had had their own particular lines, uh, their own viewpoint, their own political stance, which was um, just a little wide of of um, official SNP policy. Indeed, yes, that sense of a of a broader kind of patriotic cultural movement that was not much interested in electoral manifestos or or strategies for winning by elections and so on. Exactly, exactly. You've mentioned um, the the world of these pubs and some of the the famous names associated with them. Looking back on this period, it's it's very striking that it seems to be an almost entirely male world. Did that strike people at the time? Do you think? Well, you'd have to say that it was still predominantly a male world, no doubt about it. Uh, but there were uh, female poets coming up. Uh, you think of Liz Lockhead in particular. Um, she used to appear at the Heretics readings. Uh, they gave her her first public performances, I think. Uh, also people like Val Simmons, later Val Gillis. Tessa Ransford, who started the Scottish Poetry Library a decade or two after that. Um, Catherine Lucy Cherkavska, she was another who springs to mind. Then, of course, there was Joy Hendry, who uh, edited Chapman magazine with her then-husband Walter Perry for quite a long time. Um, and uh, later, she stayed on as a, a very hard-working uh, sole editor of Chapman for many, many years after that. Uh, those are the main people that spring to mind. But certainly it was still very much a male world. When you're thinking of the, the magazines with which you have the strongest connections, is there a particular article or debate that stands out for you or, or a sense for you of what made those magazines truly special and, and distinctive? 
Well, I suppose the single debate that that, that I remember most was the the knitted claymore uh, debate, uh, which was um, on a, a an article by uh, the poet Alan Jackson, who one probably put on the sort of um, cosmopolitan side. Although, again, he was very much a, a an individual, he, he became interested in. He was much more interested in, in for instance, um, people like Gurdjieff and um, uh, Rudolf Steiner and that kind of thing. Um, but he uh, and Jung, he was very interested in Jung, and uh, he attacked the nationalist writers, including myself, I may say, um, in this article in Lines Review, and uh, basically from a sort of Jungian position. Uh, although I must say I am also a Jungian, that uh, called forth a, a diversity of responses which showed that um, a lot of the people he was attacking couldn't really be summed up under one single head. They all had different positions and argued slightly differently um, in response to what he said. Uh, and uh, Robin Fulton quite generously devoted an entire extra supplement to the the journal give these people vo a voice to reply to what Jackson was saying. So that was a very important one. I would say that Across had a, a very good record um, as a, a critical magazine. Uh, it did it ran a lot of very excellent critical articles and at a high, high standard of reviewing. Um, lines m concentrated more on poetry and a, a few reviews and Chapman did both as well. That um, knitted Claymore debate didn't just reach into the scene of magazines, but also made ripples, at least, in the letters pages of newspapers like The Scotsman. Yes, that's right. In, in your view, what sort of impact did these magazines have beyond their particular subscriber lists? Did it feel like they were able to reach out beyond that perhaps quite insular and narrow scene well, it's very difficult to gauge, very difficult indeed. F.R. Levis uh, said at one point that minorities can be disproportionately influential. And although these magazines had uh, a very limited readership, probably if you were to actually count the numbers, I think they did have a, a wider impact. It's difficult to specify just in what ways or, or to what extent, but um, I think they certainly enriched the, the cultural atmosphere, the way in which correspondence like that could spill over into the national newspapers. Uh, so, so there were uh, ways in which it percolated, I think. Thinking of today's uh, public sphere in Scotland, is there anything that stands out about those magazines back in the 60s and 70s that maybe feels missing today or, or that has been improved upon since then? They're a tremendous miss. Uh, they may be to some extent being uh, made up for by what goes on on the internet, with which I'm not really very well up, I must say. But to me, there's no sense of uh, a coherent literary culture uh, as there was in those years. And that's what I would say marks the magazines out as having performed a very useful social, cultural function and the way in which they interacted with politics. I don't think there's anything quite equivalent today. And I think I have a, I have a sense that the cultural scene is much more fragmented. Uh, a lot of people doing their own thing and groupings which are more personal than, than based on particular 
political and literary principles. That's a really interesting observation. If we, if we make the comparison between then and now, I think you'd have to say that Scotland's cultural and political institutions are so much stronger and more established yes. um, in respect of their authority and their legitimacy in the eyes of the public. But at the same time, as you say, there is a kind of loss of coherence uh, within literary culture. Do, do you have a sense of when that shift might have emerged, when you began to, to feel this? By the mid-80s, I think, um, the Thatcher era seemed to, to have a, a big negative impact on Scotland. It, it wasn't... And, and the loss of the first devolution referendum, uh, things went very flat after that. I think quite a lot of, of these magazines petered off or, or became less vibrant, certainly, and some of them, of course, actually disappeared. That's interesting because it's in the Thatcher era that the political impetus for devolution becomes unanswerable, uh, and we have this strong consensus across the Scottish parties, uh, excluding the Conservatives, in favour of an assembly or in a parliament. Yes. Um, but perhaps the, the kind of cultural impetus for political change becomes somewhat sidelined in that period? Yeah, I think that may be true. That first failure of um, the devolution bill, immediately followed by Thatcher's victory, I think depressed a lot of people on the cultural scene a lot. And uh, it, it took a number of years, I think, before that consensus that you're talking about, that political consensus that you're talking about, really emerged strongly. By that time, the, the cultural scene had changed. One felt much more on one's own, I think, or, or you know, just that sense of, of, of the cohesiveness of the of the the culture had gone to be to be replaced by a, a stronger a stronger political scene certainly mm -hmm. one of the impressions I get from reading these particularly the, the more political magazines of the, the 70s is that from Hamilton onwards almost and, and, and reinforced by the SNP's wins in 1974, there's a sense that everyone's getting ready for something to happen. They're no longer waiting for something to happen. It feels like something is going to happen, whether it be a Scottish Assembly or devolution. And this is in a wider global context of, of, of really rapid uh, change in political yes. uncertainty. And uh, I think Tate, Bob Tate talks a lot about mapping uh, this, this need of Scottish intellectuals to reacquaint themselves with the terrain constantly as it shifts under yes. their feet. It, it feels to me like after 79, when you get that double whammy of uh, the, the devolution referendum and Thatcher gets mm -hmm. into power, people are no longer getting ready for something to happen. They begin to realize that they have to make something happen. And I wonder if that drags people into politics and, and, and in doing so, they, they have to kind of lose that, that freedom to look critically at the terrain from a kind of useful intellectual distance that seems to be there in the 70s. Christopher Harvey talks about um, the loss of utopia from the 1960s. He says utopia kind of fades from view and gets replaced with a, a more kind of pragmatic political attitude. Did you get that feeling? I suppose so, yes. I suppose when, uh, after Hamilton, there was a sense that uh, that u utopia be could become something real, and that w that was an unrealistic standpoint, really. <laughs> John, thanks for being with us. That's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Scott. 
The Scottish Magazine's network is supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council.